Hello and welcome. This is Melissa Giles, Director of Portfolio Management with Americana Partners. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. I'll be reviewing the September market commentary provided by David M. Darst, Chief Investment Officer with Americana Partners. If you'd like a full copy of the report, please visit our website at www.americanapartners.com and request to join our distribution list. The first section I will be covering is called Where We Are. Please note that any charts or graphics referenced are available by request through our website. Let's begin. In the Northern Hemisphere, September, the harvest month, marks the beginning of meteorological autumn and in many countries, the start of the academic year. September derives from the Latin word septum, meaning seven, since it was originally the seventh of ten months. March being the first month in the oldest known Roman calendar, begun around 750 BCE. As part of the calendar reform that added January and February to the beginning of the year, September received an extra day in honor of the deified Julius Caesar, and went from 29 days in length to 30 days, becoming the ninth month while retaining its name. In her short poem about this month, the Canadian author Lucy Maud Montgomery, 1874-1942, best known for her classic children's novel Anne of Green Gables, could be saluting 2021's cheerfully buoyant year-to-date equity returns in her tribute to the late delight of September. Lo, a ripe sheaf of many golden days, gleaned by the year in autumn's harvest ways, with here and there blood-tinted as an ember, some crimson poppy of a late delight, atoning in its splendor for the flight of summer blooms and joys. This is September. Historically, September has been a volatile month for stocks, and in the past has ranked as the least promising month of the year on average for the S&P 500 index over the 1928-2021 timeframe, producing an average decline of negative 1.0%. Yet in years when the S&P 500 has been performing well through August, such as this year, having risen for seven straight months, the longest stretch since January 2018, and having generated the strongest start to a year since 2000, and the sixth best start in the last 50 years, more gains are usually seen and the volatility is often pushed into October. In the other five years, with a positive 20% or greater return through August, each ended the year higher, with an average full-year return of positive 27%. Through September 1st of this year, the S&P 500 has reached a total of 53 new record-closing highs, the fifth highest number in the last 93 years. Monthly and year-to-date price performance in August, the S&P 500 rose positive 2.9%, its third best month of the year, with the Nasdaq Composite increasing positive 4.0%, also its third best month of 2021, perhaps reflecting an improved outlook about the prospects for the U.S. economy in the remaining months of 2021 and into 2022. The Russell 2000 Index of Small and Mid-Cap Companies changed course from its negative 3.6% decline in July and gained positive 2.1% in August. Over the course of August, West Texas intermediate crude oil prices declined negative 7.4% from $73.95 per barrel on July 30th to $68.50 per barrel on August 31st. With the global economy and the global oil demand side reflecting the effects of the Delta variant of the coronavirus pandemic. On the supply side, one, facing pressure from investors to moderate growth 
and address their emissions amid concerns about increasing regulations and climate change. Large U.S. and European oil companies continue to spend sparingly to boost production. Two, consolidating U.S. shale producers have exercised financial discipline and exerted capital spending restraint. And three, following the 20th OPEC and non-OPEC ministerial meeting on September 1st and a post-meeting ratification of new output quotas for selected countries, the group, which includes Saudi Arabia, Russia, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Iraq, and other countries, agreed to maintain output increases of 0.4 million barrels per day per month from September until December 2021, aiming to fully phase out production cuts by September 2022. The next OPEC Plus meeting is scheduled for October 4th. During August, the U.S. dollar gained positive 0.7% versus the DXY index, comprised of six major currencies, the euro, Japanese yen, British pound, Canadian dollar, Swiss franc, and Swedish krona. On July 30th, the DXY index was 92.09, and on August 31st, the index closed at 92.71. Despite declining a combined 34 basis points over the course of June and July, and dipping as low as 1.17% at the beginning of August, 10-year U.S. Treasury interest rates were little changed in August, rising only 7 basis points during the month to close at a 1.31% yield. The longer maturity 30-year U.S. Treasury bond experienced an even smaller yield change, a 3 basis point rise to 1.92% at month end, and the 2-year U.S. Treasury note yield was virtually unchanged in August, rising 1 basis point to 0.20% on August 31st. Now let's discuss many of the positive and worrisome economic developments affecting financial asset prices, the inflation outlook, the course of monetary policy, and vaccinations and the Delta variant. Positive Economic Developments Improving Jobs Market After a rolling sequence of shortages in 2021, including, among other inputs, lumber, used cars, ocean shipping capacity, and semiconductors, for many companies, labor continues to be in short supply. Reflected in the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports of, one, an increase to a series-high 10.1 million job openings as of the last business day of June, and two, the large August increase in average hourly earnings of production and non-supervisory employees, positive 0.6%, month-over-month, and positive 4.3% year-over-year. Goldilocks Labor Recovery While the labor market is improving, in view of August's modest, positive 235,000 employment gain as of early September, it does not appear to be improving to such a rapid extent that it might occasion a more aggressive pace of asset purchase tapering by the Federal Reserve. Services Sector Expansion On Friday, September 3rd, the Institute for Supply Management reported that its ISM Services Index grew for the 15th consecutive month, registering 61.7 in August after hitting a record high 64.1 in July the fastest pace since this data series was inaugurated in 2008. Manufacturing Sector Expansion On Wednesday, September 1st, the ISM Manufacturing Index, also registering growth in 15 consecutive months, came in at a very good reading of 59.9 versus 59.4 in July despite shortages of labor and supplies. With several of the price sub-indices beginning to show signs of easing, supporting assertions that the recent spike in inflation may not be as enduring as feared. Rising home prices, spurred by low interest rates, an increased ability to work remotely, and low inventories of homes for sale, 
The median sales price for single-family existing homes was higher year-over-year in second quarter 2021 for 182 of the 183 metropolitan areas tracked by the National Association of Realtors. And in 94% of those metropolitan areas, median prices rose by more than positive 10% from a year earlier. Nationwide, the median single-family existing home sales price rose to 357900 positive 22.9% in the second quarter versus a year earlier, a record in the data going back to 1968. Potential for scaled-back tax increases. In a Wall Street Journal op-ed on Thursday, September 2nd, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin indicated that he would not support a social infrastructure spending bill, anywhere near $3.5 trillion, thus reducing the chances that such a large package would become law and lead to significantly higher taxes. Significant Individual and Institutional Investor Liquidity The Investment Company Institute reports that as of September 1st, total assets of retail money market funds amounted to $1.43 trillion, and total assets of institutional money market funds reached $3.08 trillion. These sums, aggregating just to over $4.5 trillion, represent significant potential buying power for financial assets. Significant Corporate Liquidity According to Dow Jones Market Data, Cash holdings among S&P 500 companies reached $1.98 trillion on August 9th, an increase of more than 30% from two years earlier, the end of third quarter 2019. When combined with significant available credit that remains unused, Standard & Poor's estimates a total of $6.8 trillion of unused cash liquidity is available to the corporate sector as a whole. This liquidity can be used to buy back stock, increase dividends, and pursue strategic capital investments. Now let's discuss some worrisome economic developments. Uninspiring retail sales, after declining negative 1.4%, all figures are on a month-over-month basis. In May, and increasing positive 0.7% in June, retail sales came in below consensus estimates in July, declining negative 1.1%, with motor vehicle sales exhibiting weakness in all three months. Negative 4.6% in May, negative 2.2% in June, and negative 3.9% in July. Subsiding Commodity Prices The prices of energy and several other economically sensitive commodity prices have been weakening, with copper prices down negative 15.0% since May, lumber prices down more than negative 70% from their 2021 highs, and West Texas intermediate oil prices declining negative 7.8% from $75.16 per barrel on July 2nd to $69.29 per barrel on September 3rd. Slowing Third Quarter Growth as of September 2nd, the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now forecasting tool, reflecting and confirming meaningfully softening Empire State Manufacturing and Philly Fed business outlook surveys, as well as lowered estimates of personal consumption growth, business private investment growth, and net exports, registered a meaningful decline in its annualized third quarter 2021 GDP estimate to positive 3.7%, down from positive 5.3% earlier. Declining Consumer Confidence The August University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Survey, a national survey of 500 households, reflecting Delta coronavirus concerns and, to a lesser extent, rising gasoline and food prices, plummeted to a 10-year low of 70.3 revised versus 80.2 in July, the sixth-largest monthly decline in the past 50 years of the survey. Lower readings were widespread across income, age, and education subgroups and observed across all geographic regions. Moreover, the losses covered all aspects of the economy, from personal finances to prospects for the economy. 
including inflation and unemployment. The chart provided in the original commentary also shows a confirming decline in the August Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index to 113.8, down from 125.0 in July. Valuation and Concentration Considerations At 21.2 times forward earnings, the price-earnings ratio of the S&P 500 is the highest it has been in two decades. Although valuation, generally, does not represent the causal trigger for a market correction at elevated levels as it is presently, it nevertheless can serve investors well as a cautionary warning sign, particularly when viewed in conjunction with considerations of equity market concentration. The chart provided in the original commentary displays the cumulative market capitalization weight of the top five companies as a percentage of the total equity market capitalization of the S&P 500 index. At 22.8% of the S&P 500, the cumulative market capitalization of the top five companies, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and Alphabet Google, is the highest it has been in the past 32 years, even surpassing 2020's pandemic-driven, seeking of refuge in the technology giants, 21.8% cumulative weight for the top five companies. And by a significant margin, the dot-com era's 16.4% cumulative weight of the top five companies near the secular bull market top in 1999. Investors are advised to vigilantly and defensively take heed of these high valuations. High-quality, all-weather assets deserve prominence in portfolios. Given the high degree of equity market capitalization concentration, the complacent volatility readings, and the long span of time without so much as a 5% price correction. Now let's discuss the inflation outlook. Reflecting continued disruptions in global supply chain dynamics and increasing the likelihood that corporate profit margins may come under some degree of pressure, in July, 1. The headline consumer price index rose positive 0.5% month-over-month and positive 5.3% year-over-year, 2. The core CPI, excluding food and energy prices, rose positive 0.3% month-over-month and positive 4.3% year-over-year. 3. The headline producer price index rose positive 1.0% month-over-month and positive 7.8% year-over-year. 4. The core PPI, excluding food and energy prices, rose positive 1.0% month-over-month and positive 6.2% year-over-year. 5. The headline personal consumption expenditures price index rose positive 0.4% month-over-month and positive 4.2% year-over-year, and 6. The core PCE, excluding food and energy prices, rose positive 0.3% month-over-month and positive 3.6% year-over-year. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York's July Survey of Consumer Expectations released on Monday, August 9th, showed that consumers continued to foresee rapid price gains in the near future as the economy reopens from pandemic-related lockdowns, while at the same time their expectations for long-term inflation over three years, have risen only slightly from positive 3.6% up to positive 3.7%. These recent price and survey data, coupled with continuing challenges to global supply chains, elevated transportation costs, and labor compensation pressures underscore our opinion that although inflation may have started gradually to recede, the rates of price changes may remain elevated for longer than predicted and are not likely to return to pre-COVID inflation levels. The Course of Monetary Policy With the final three Federal Open Market Committee monetary policy meetings of 2021 scheduled for September 21st through the 22nd, November 2nd through the 3rd, and December 14th through the 15th, Fed governor speeches and media interviews have appeared to indicate, although not a certainty, 
that tapering of quantitative easing may begin in November or December, may likely involve monthly reductions of $15 billion in monthly asset purchases, and would therefore last until mid-2022. Federal Reserve Chair Powell's speech via video connection on Friday, August 27th, to the Kansas City Federal Reserve Central Banker Symposium, one, reiterated that median views of Fed governors that inflation will turn out to be temporary. Two, downplayed the Delta variant of COVID-19, though serious from a public health perspective, as a near-term influence on monetary policy, and three, sought to delink the tapering of quantitative easing from a putatively displayed commencement of policy interest rate increases. It is worth keeping in mind that equities prices underwent corrections after varying lengths of continued rally time. Following the cessation of quantitative easing 1 in March 2010, of QE2 in June 2011, and of QE3 in the fall of 2014, we are of the opinion that the Fed also remains mindful of these episodes and, at least well into calendar 2022, by the way, a midterm election year, monetary policy may remain supportive of financial asset prices. Vaccinations and the Delta Variant While there appears to be no intermediate fix for the pandemic and no assurance that the current Delta surge will be the final one, the Food and Drug Administration's approval on August 23rd of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine has given federal agencies, local governments, and companies the legal backing to begin issuing vaccination mandates for their employees. And thus far, the public health policy response to the Delta variant of the coronavirus has not mandated lockdowns with the authorities instead emphasizing vaccinations, mandatory masking, social distancing, limiting public and private gathering sizes, and restricting venue occupancies. With 36% of American adult and 47% of the country's total population not yet fully vaccinated as of September 5th, the Delta variant has dented the pace of the U.S. economic recovery by, on the employment supply side, causing individuals who are fearful of COVID-19 to delay returning to the labor market and, by, on the employment demand side, significantly hindering jobs growth in services sectors that involve in-person interaction. These behavioral changes have also created meaningful headwinds for the travel and education sectors. Epidemiologists have described America's current stage in the pandemic as fragile, and examples from other countries offer scant guidance about the path forward. Despite high vaccination rates in Israel, the Delta variant has led to a significant uptick in cases this summer. In India and Britain, infection levels declined sharply after the initial phases of Delta variant surges, but cases in Britain have recently begun to increase again. Labor Day weekend 2021 has scarcely resembled Memorial Day of this year, when the United States was averaging fewer than 25,000 cases daily. Instead, with a more than 160,000 new cases per day, approximately 100,000 COVID patients hospitalized nationwide, and over 1,500 American mortalities on many days worse than when cases began to surge in 2020, yet far lower than the winter peak. The coronavirus appears likely to remain a fact of American life for the foreseeable future. At the same time, vaccination rates have continued to climb, and reports of new infections have begun to fall in some hard-hit southern states. Recognizing the immense scientific difficulty of predicting the impact of the Delta variant, much less the course of any other new virus strains that may emerge, Our investment thinking at the current time rests on the premise that 1. Vaccines have been effective in reducing severe symptoms, hospitalizations, and mortalities, and 2. Unless a COVID variant breaks through one of the messenger RNA vaccines, widespread lockdowns do not appear likely to become part of the official public health policy arsenal. It also remains a possibility that the country could see COVID-19 infections 
remaining high in the near term before turning down later this fall in response to further vaccinations, third booster shots, and shifting behavior by the public at large. We will now discuss asset class reviews of private equity and U.S. cash and cash equivalents, followed by a discussion of our current thinking about the approach of portfolio positioning strategy, portfolio positioning principles, and portfolio positioning tactics. Private equity. Description. The term private equity describes a broad spectrum of investment activity generally grouped into two major categories, one, venture capital, and two, leveraged buyouts, LBOs, which are distinguished from each other primarily in terms of typical size of the equity investment, the technological riskiness or stage of maturity of the investee company, and the amount and role of debt in the transaction. Venture capital involves early-stage investing in the equity of privately owned companies with high potential for future growth and may encompass 1. Angel, incubation, seed, or early-stage financings, 2. Startup, product, prototype, or expansion round financings, 3. Mezzanine or structured financings utilizing debt securities with equity-like features, such as dividend payments, residual interest, lesser priority in liquidation, no maturity date, voting rights, and or four, bridge stage financings for companies expecting to go public within some unknown timeframe. Leveraged buyouts involve taking a 100% or a significant controlling stake in more mature existing businesses and may include management buyouts, MBOs, workouts, or turnaround situations involving what are often reasonably stable businesses that may be experiencing financial or operating distress. Through their knowledge, experience, contacts, management selection skills, and proactive involvement, private equity investors in the sometimes overlapping venture capital and LBO fields seek to add value through one, identifying attractive opportunities, two, evaluating, structuring, or restructuring financial transactions, three, strategically and tactically influencing the structure, health, survival, growth, and profitability of their investee companies, and four, exiting their investments on favorable time, price, and destination terms. Choices. While a not inconsiderable portion of private equity investments are made directly by corporate, institutional, and individual investors, a substantial majority of private equity is managed by the general partners of investment partnerships, with most of the capital supplied by limited partnerships. Such partnerships may have a broad mandate, or they may be differentiated as to the stage, industry, region, or size of the intended investment activity. Private equity may be accessed through one or more individual investments or partnerships through funds of funds, through closed-end funds, through co-investment opportunities, and through entities focusing on developed international or emerging markets. Other vehicles for private equity investment include 1. Pipe financings, private investment in public equity, which involve a private placement of public stock usually at a discount to the prevailing market price and often with other structural features and with appropriate consents and approvals. Two, the purchase of partnership interests in the secondary market from existing limited partners. Rationale for investment. One, when gauged over several market cycles, private equity has tended to generate relatively high compound annual growth rates in nominal and real returns. In many instances, substantially exceeding the returns of publicly traded U.S. and non-U.S. equity. Private equity returns are usually similar, if not equivalent to the returns accruing to the entrepreneurial drive, which underpins the rewards, corporate risk-taking, and advancement, and thus may offer significant upside potential returns in robust financial market environments. 
Two, because private equity often involves concentrated investing in highly firm-specific, rather than financial market-specific, technologies, ideas, products, people, or business management acumen and restructuring activity. The correlation of returns between private equity and most other asset classes has tended to be low in the case of U.S. and non-U.S. and emerging markets, equity, cash, hedge funds, high-yield bonds, commodities, and real estate, and can be modestly negative in the case of U.S. and non-U.S. bonds. As a result, private equity has at times been considered an effective diversifying asset within an overall portfolio. 3. Through what is effectively an investment in a business person's and or a general partner's judgment skills of strategic positioning of competitive advantage of innovation, of valuations, of people, private equity offers top quartile entities the opportunity to exploit unique or unusual situations and earn significant excess return alpha from inflection points, market inefficiencies, and pricing anomalies. 4. Private equity tends to focus on investment in sectors experiencing fundamental change or a capital shortage and may reward the application of specialized industry and operating expertise. 1. In venture capital in areas such as biotechnology, computer software storage and services, artificial intelligence, machine learning, optics, content management, and other technology-intensive fields, and 2. In leveraged buyouts in industries such as consumer products, manufacturing, oil and gas, and other stable cash flow industries. 5. In view of the fact that the investor or the investor's general partner can have a more direct degree of closeness to, connectivity with, involvement in, and potential control over investee companies, private equity may allow for a tighter alignment of corporate and personal incentives, more timely replacement of underperforming managers or assets, and or strategic coordination with other existing businesses and investment interests. Risks and Concerns 1. Private equity investments may be characterized by 1. Irregular flows and outflows of cash stemming from the periodic unscheduled drawdowns of investors' funds until their total capital commitment is reached, and from the uncertain timing and form money versus stock distributions of capital disbursements, and 2. Low liquidity. With typical partnership terms of 7 to 10 years or more, lack of standardization in lockup and withdrawal conditions, and difficulty in freely transferring investments. 2. Unusual or potentially unfavorable elements of investing through private equity partnership include 1. The wide degree of investment latitude ceded to the general partner and any applicable oversight, conflict resolution, or general partner replacement conditions. 2. High minimum capital commitments management fees on undrawn capital contributions and penalties if limited partners decide not to continue their capital commitments. And three, the potential dependency of high expected returns on one or two highly successful investments, in the absence of which actual returns may be reduced as by much as 40 to 50%. Three, influenced by feast or famine swings in returns, capital raised and deployed investee industries, number of investments, focus on new versus existing investments, Investor expectations, clawback provisions, valuations, competitive bidding scenarios, deal pricing, financial availability, leverage employed, and exit opportunities, private equity returns can be meaningfully volatile over time, producing standard deviations of returns considerably in excess of those for publicly traded U.S. and non-U.S. equity. 4. The costs of private equity investing are not insubstantial typically consisting of 1-2% of capital committed plus a 20% carry or participation in profits earned, 
In addition, private equity investors may incur at times burdensome legal, due diligence, informational, tax, negotiation, accounting, consulting, monitoring, and administrative expenses. It can be difficult to compare the returns from one vintage year, private equity partnership formation, period to another, because of one inherent difficulties in standardizing, verifying, and interpreting internal rate of return and multiple uninvested capital metrics as measures of performance. Two, the possible influence of survivorship bias and selection bias on reported results. And three, understated volatility and delayed or inaccurate recognition of the true worth of investments stemming from the use of historical book values, relatively infrequent appraisals, and assumed liquidation values rather than publicly tradable prices. Now let's discuss U.S. cash and cash equivalents. Description. Cash. And cash equivalents encompass a wide spectrum of generally liquid assets. One, usually with less than one year's original or remaining maturity. Two, whose returns may tend to track inflation to some degree. And three, some of which can be purchased or sold in a relatively prompt fashion to affect payments or to be reinvested. The investment returns on sovereign cash instruments are frequently considered to be a proxy for the risk-free rate of return within their respective countries. While cash as an asset class may tend to be ignored or underemphasized by some investors during periods of persistently rising prices for goods and services and or for financial assets, cash may function as a critically important defensive asset class in periods of declining prices for goods and services or negative investment returns in other asset classes. Choices. Cash may include one, physical and or electronic holdings of banknotes, coins, bills, call money, and Fed funds. Two, money market funds or money market mutual funds. Three, stable value funds and ultra-short bond funds. Four, commingled portfolios sometimes known as cash management or enhanced cash funds. Five, bank balances, passbook accounts, statement accounts, credit union accounts, bank deposits, sweep accounts, and certificates of deposit, and six. U.S. Treasury bills and federal agency securities, short-term municipal obligations, repurchase agreements, bankers' acceptances, floating rate instruments, some medium-term notes, and commercial paper. Many countries outside the U.S. also have local currency and or U.S. dollar-denominated money markets with a variety of investable cash instruments. Cash equivalents may be differentiated as to their credit quality, maturity, taxability, and interest payment and calculation methodology. So-called negative cash may include reverse purchase and securities lending agreements and borrowing via the Fed funds market and or securitized margin facilities. Rationale for investment. One, generally low nominal capital price fluctuation risk have historically rendered cash a safe haven in periods of negative financial returns. Two, Cash usually has, one, low average correlations of returns with U.S. and international equity asset classes, two, modest correlations of returns with fixed income, real estate, and hedge fund asset classes, and three, negative correlations of returns with commodities and emerging market equity asset classes. Three, the standard deviation of returns on cash instruments tends to be very low. Four, convenience, liquidity, and ease of access can make cash an advantageous asset class in which to invest funds in anticipation of projected financial obligations or in consideration of future investment opportunities. Five, benchmark indices such as the 30 or 90-day U.S. Treasury bill rate and various secured interbank and overnight financial rates may outperform other financial asset classes in disinflationary or deflationary economic and financial environments.
Risks and concerns. One, nominal and real rates of return on cash investments over longer-term intervals generally tend to be below the expected nominal and real returns for most other asset classes. Two, reinvestment risk may occur whenever cash principal must be rolled over into new cash instruments at uncertain and potentially unfavorable future rates of return. Three, purchasing power risk usually takes place when the real value of cash holdings is eroded during inflationary eras. Four, cash instruments may span a broad degree of credit risk and may carry varying degrees of federal, private, or structural protection against loss of principal due to credit downgrades, interest rate risk, duration risk, or other risks. Five, asset management expenses, transaction charges, early redemption fees, and other expenses can significantly reduce the often modest average returns from cash investments. In many cases, substantial amounts of time and attention must be devoted to the management and reinvestment of cash and cash-equivalent assets. Now let's discuss portfolio positioning. Portfolio Positioning Strategies In the current moderately slowing yet still relatively robust economic expansion and subdued yields environment, we believe that careful thought, planning, and attention needs to be devoted to the investor's most appropriate forms and vehicles for implementing the fundamental elements of asset allocation and investment strategy, which include 1. Diversification. While it doesn't guarantee a profit or insure against a loss, diversification means having sustainably low and negatively correlated investment exposures that truly counterbalance price movements in other assets, particularly during times of great financial stress and or market volatility. 2. Rebalancing which encompasses using concepts of reversion to the mean to trim exposures to assets that have grown to represent too large a portion of the overall portfolio, while at the same time adding exposure to high-quality assets that have fallen out of investor favor and suffered significant, though deemed not permanent, price declines versus intrinsic value. 3. Risk management, which involves recognizing when markets have become consumed by meme securities, momentum plays, story stocks, and information overload a situation that has pertained in recent months to more than a few companies in the technology space. And understanding the degree of liquidity, the true pricing realism, and the appropriate roles of short-term liquid securities, real assets, financial assets, and alternative assets in decades-long or longer, regimes of inflation, stagflation, deflation, monetary disruptions, and currency resets. Four, reinvestment, which encompasses knowing when to emphasize and trade off income, return, versus capital growth all the while keeping in mind the critical importance of discipline, equanimity, patience, tax awareness, and longevity in capturing and compounding dividend, coupon, rental, and other income flows, and five, asset protection and husbandry, which encompasses considerations of income and capital gains taxation at the state, local, federal, and possibly international level, estate planning, relevant insurance design and structuring, cybersecurity shielding, portfolio monitoring and reporting, administrative costs, forms, frequency, and means of asset access and asset custody. Portfolio positioning principles. We continue to allocate to a considered and considerable exposure to equities with judicious shifts between styles, sectors, and geographies and, where appropriate from a cost, timing, tax, liquidity, and size standpoint, public versus private markets. Expressed are a number of themes that we believe should be taken into consideration over the next few years in selecting asset categories, asset classes, asset managers, sectors, companies, and security types. 1. Paying attention to the value of money, taking advantage of, rather than being taken advantage of by, the likelihood of money printing, internal and external currency debasement, government debt monetization, and the modern monetary theory approach that, to some degree in the pandemic response era, 
has been pursued by the authorities, within shifting money and credit cycles, to service America's massive explicit government and corporate indebtedness, and the enormous implicit obligations of pension and healthcare promises. Two, concentrating on all weather sectors and companies, seeking investments with balance and flexibility that are able to thrive regardless of which political persuasion informs the thinking and policies of the White House, Congress, the nation, and the regulatory authorities, evolving environmental, social, and governance, ESG priorities and values, wealth distribution initiatives, and public health conditions, and wider socioeconomic trends. Three, distinguishing between temporary and permanent change focusing on the commercial and financial implications of new social and political power structures, alliances, and geopolitical relationships, new energy sources and resources, new trade patterns, new on- and offshoring channels, new work-from-home and work-from-anywhere employment modalities, and new business models, pathways, digitalizations, and forms of person-to-person and business-to-business work, leisure, learning, and wellness activity. Four, taking advantage of demographic tailwinds, through U.S. and select non-U.S. companies gaining exposure to and meeting the rising needs, aspirations, and spending power of the rapidly expanding global middle class, especially in Asia. 5. Comprehending and verifying past success. Emphasizing companies and sectors that have demonstrated successful track records and past experience in capital allocation, balance sheet strength, risk management, sustainably defendable business models, and the ability to generate and sustain high multi-year returns on equity derived from revenue growth and favorable margin preservation rather than through inappropriately high levels of leverage, meaningfully above the companies and sectors' weighted average cost of capital, and six, identifying innovative and disruptive technology hegemons, focusing on technology enablers, disruptors, and dominators in biotechnology, diagnostics, and therapeutics based on CRISPR, weight management and well-being, public health, medical nutrition, regenerative medicine, artificial intelligence, data analytics, machine learning, 5G cellular network technology, the Internet of Things, infrastructure, robotics, retraining, quantum computing, battery inventions, alternative energy, electric vehicles, and cybersecurity, while not least also taking account of the environmental, social, and governance, ESG aspirations, and initiatives of companies in these and other fields. Now let's discuss portfolio positioning tactics. One, keeping things in perspective. Many of the overarching themes and conditions that influence our intermediate and long-term asset allocation and investment strategy emphasize the need to recognize the concepts and implementation methods intended to achieve safety, balance, purchasing power protection, diversification, and liquidity are likely to face evolving and sometimes rapidly shifting taxation regimes, social priorities, geopolitical power relationships, price level changes, demographic trends, indebtedness levels, technological penetration and usage, and importantly, perceptions of the definition, role, degree of physicality, embodiment, and value of money itself. Two, flexibility versus conviction in formulating investment thinking. In seeking to determine when to adhere to and when to lean against prevailing consensus views, sometimes pejoratively referred to as groupthink, it is important to critically question the soundness and durability of the reasoning and assumptions underlying a given investment framework and positioning at any point in time. While it may not make sense to hold out of consensus views just for the sake of doing so, often expressed as fighting the tape, at other times, especially at major cyclical or secular turning points, 
at a significant asset top when reality is finally found to fall short of prevailingly overly optimistic expectations, or a major asset bottom when reality is shown to be worth considerably more than prevailingly overly pessimistic expectations, the rewards of implementing a contrarian stance can be quite meaningful. 3. Enhancing and preserving. While we admit to a continuing degree of unease over recent manifestations of investor exuberance and the popularity of certain stocks and sectors considered to be forever holdings, our short-term inclination at this juncture is to take note of the Federal Reserve's marginally less emphatic support of financial asset prices while taking advantage of such strength to continue the course of upgrading positions, offloading lower-quality, higher-risk assets and with timing and price discipline, adding to attractively priced, higher-quality assets on equity market pullbacks. It is worth keeping in mind that the average year includes three separate negative 5% or more pullbacks for the S&P 500 with not a single one transpiring thus far in 2021. And no negative 10% correction has taken place since March 2020. In view of our expectation of increased volatility in the remainder of 2021, prudence counsels being vigilantly aware of the increasingly narrowing market breadth and taking advantage of such retrenchments before committing significant amounts. 4. Equity Emphases and De-Emphases Particularly in the current conditions of historically low U.S. Treasury interest rates, and given the likely focus areas of government spending initiatives, to us it appears likely that cash-generating, financially stable companies with robust growth prospects, which are able to operate and thrive in the digital sphere as they continue to enhance their business models, deserve to retain some degree of valuation premium. Within Equities 1, we recommend continuing to gradually shift emphasis from growth sectors companies and managers towards the inclusion of select value sectors companies and managers. 2. We continue to counsel selectively adding small and mid-cap companies or investment managers specializing in and with good track records in this space to our primary yet gradually lessening emphasis on large capitalization enterprises. And three, for the time being, while we continue to prefer a tactical overweighting to U.S. domestic equities, with any pullbacks currently viewed as an opportunity to judiciously add equities, particularly those sectors and companies likely to benefit from an economic recovery, we also espouse holding or building relatively modest allocations to emerging market equities and developed international markets. Five, focus on strength and quality. Our long-term equity portfolio weightings continue to emphasize asset managers, sectors, and specific companies that can benefit from the major sustained trends of the 2020-2030 decade, including one, incremental growth in a wide range of economic circumstances, two, a focus on economic repair, digitalization, e-commerce, personal wellness, safety, domesticity, home improvement, infrastructure spending, and sustainable consumer demand, and three, advantageous capture of benefits from onshoring, supply chain redesign, and deglobalization as important drivers of capital spending and disruptive innovation. At the company level in equities, we emphasize identifying and building long-term exposure to firms possessing fortress-like, cash-rich balance sheets, prudence in balance sheet utilization, limited debt, consistency, and durability of positive free cash flow generation, dividend strength, and competitive business models with sustainable competitive advantages, high barriers to entry, low threat of substitute products, and viable pricing power vis-a-vis suppliers and or customers that over a long time frame can generate high returns on equity. At the current time, we recommend that consideration be given to top quality companies in the healthcare, consumer staple, and financial sectors. 6. Balancing Growth and Value Sectors 
Through Tuesday, August 31st, the total return of the Russell 1000 growth index, including companies in sectors such as technology, healthcare, and communication services, according to the Wall Street Journal, was positive 21.1% year-to-date, while the total return of the Russell 1000 value index, including companies in sectors such as financial, real estate, energy, utility, and industrial businesses, was, according to the Wall Street Journal, positive 20.3% year-to-date. This fairly narrow 0.8 percentage point growth minus value returns differential appears to argue for some degree of balanced exposure in selected growth sectors, companies, and managers, as well as selected value sectors, companies, and managers. As this process continues, it is worth keeping in mind that true value investing represents identifying assets that are trading for less than they are actually worth, not assets that are merely inexpensive. Many superficially inexpensive assets may very well be inexpensive for a reason and can very well remain so or deteriorate further. 7. Fixed Income Securities Bond prices persist at elevated price levels, with ultra-low yields across the maturity spectrum. Even though yield movements have been modest in the past two months, they have risen somewhat since year-end 2020, with, according to Bloomberg in mid-July, an extraordinary total of $16.5 trillion, up from $12 trillion in mid-May, in global negative yielding sovereign and some corporate debt outstanding. We affirm our preference for issuers at the high-quality end of the rating spectrum in both taxable investment grade and high-yield bonds and in tax-exempt bonds where we continue to see some pockets of value on a taxable equivalent basis. We see fixed-income securities as continuing to be subject to price risk due to our expectation of somewhat higher yields in the third trimester of 2021. And thus, we prefer maturities and durations along the short to intermediate portion of the yield curve spectrum. 8. U.S. Dollar Outlook After declining negative 9.9% in 2017, appreciating positive 4.4% in 2018, marginally gaining positive 0.4% in 2019, and declining negative 3.4% in 2020, the DXY U.S. Dollar Index measured versus a basket of six major currencies, the euro, Japanese yen, Swedish krona, British pound, Canadian dollar, and Swiss franc, had, as of its market close of 92.63 on August 31st, appreciated positive 3.0% year-to-date in 2021. Over the next few quarters, we believe the U.S. dollar may begin to trace a gradual path of weakness as, due to the likelihood of the European Central Bank becoming more assertive in asset purchase tapering, the magnitude of the U.S. current account payments deficit and not least, the massive fiscal 2020 and 2021 federal government budget deficits. 9. Alternative Investments and Real Assets In alternative investments, we continue our multi-quarter focus that has for some time emphasized exposure to 1. Commodities and real asset sectors of the economy including industrial metals, agriculture, and materials. 2. Gold and or gold mining ETF shares, particularly those miners with reserves in stable geographic locations, capital discipline, and cash flow growth. Three, high-quality master-limited partnerships with strong business models and sustainable dividend-paying capacity. Four, select investments in private credit and private real estate. Five, and opportunistic strategies that are positioned to selectively derive meaningful value from the dislocations created by the coronavirus pandemic and the economic and profits recovery that we expect in the year ahead. This concludes our September market commentary by David M. Darst. David is Americana Partners Chief Investment Officer. We are available to answer questions you may have regarding the topics discussed. 
If you'd like a full copy of the report, please visit our website at www.americanapartners.com and request to join our distribution list. Thank you for listening. This is Melissa Giles, Director of Portfolio Management with Americana Partners. Stay invested.